it's great to be with you today, especially if it is your first time. I want to welcome you, and uh, I want to give a big shout out to those of you right now tuning in online, as well as those of you uh, at our West Campus. We're glad that uh, you have joined us today as we keep going in this series that we kicked off last weekend called Grow. Now, one thing that we have been running after in this series is, is understanding that, that God originally designed us to live a certain way, and, and when he sent Jesus to die the death that we all deserved on a cross, it it wasn't just merely to save us from our sin and get us into heaven after our funeral. No, that's half of it. And and the other other reason why Jesus died is to give us the life now because eternal life, heaven, begins here in, in this moment. It's possible for us to experience this life that God originally designed for us to, to live. Therefore, there is a specific way and a, a process for us to begin living the way that God designed for us to live. Here's how we've been defining growth in this series, just for the sake of clarity, okay? Growth is about who you become, not what you do. All right, growth is about who you become as a person. It's a, it's a process and, and it, it takes time and sometimes it's frustrating, but it's not so much about what we do, although what we do day in and day out, what we read, what we absorb and take in does ultimately influence who we become as a person. Now, it's important for us to uh, remember that God is not in love with a better, more improved version of us, okay? All right, he's not just merely putting up with us in the meantime until we become that person that he wants us to be. All right now, I'm the father of three kids, and our kids are two, five, and six years old, okay? Now, let me just tell you that I don't love our oldest, JR, more than the other two simply because he started walking sooner than the other two. I mean, he started walking when he was nine months old and uh, his sister and his brother didn't begin walking until late, until they were a little bit older. Now his, his growth and his development really doesn't make him a, you know, truer member of our family. And, and my love for him certainly isn't contingent upon how quickly he has grown and developed. No, the legitimacy of his life and membership into our family has nothing to do with how much he, he grows. And so we need to remember that that Jesus doesn't have this ideal future version of us. And and until we arrive there, until until we get to that point, he, 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 in the meantime, just kind of puts up with us. And you see, oftentimes the one thing that stagnates us from growing to becoming the person that God designed us to be is, is holding on to this diminished view of Jesus, Right? And that's really what this church in uh, the ancient city of Colossae was struggling with. And, and so it's why this guy by the name of Paul wrote this letter to address their perceptions in view of Jesus. And, and so that's where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Colossians. If you don't own a Bible, uh, didn't bring it with you, there should be a Bible in the seat below you or in front of you. And uh, if you don't own one, feel free to take that with you when you leave here today. Colossians can be found towards the back of your Bibles, okay? in between the books of Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. Okay, now Paul, the author of this letter, didn't start this church, okay? But he had heard that evidently they had been sold, these Christians had, had bought into a false version of Jesus. And so one of the very first things he does is he, is he corrects some misunderstandings about Christ. And pick up with me in chapter one, verse 15. He says this, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, in him, all things were created, 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now let's stop right here for for just a minute, okay? Because the main point at the beginning of this letter is that Jesus isn't just one of many different gods. He isn't just another spirit or an angel. Notice in verse 15 that we read, he, he is the image of the invisible God. Right, that was Paul's way of saying that, that he is the actual expression, okay, of the unseen creator God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He, he is sovereign. This is why one time Jesus said to one of his closest friends, hey, anybody who has seen me has actually seen my Father in heaven, has seen, has seen God. In verse 16, we learn that Jesus is over everything in the physical and spiritual world. It, it, it all answers to Jesus. Author Francis Schaeffer um, once said it like this, if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all, right? One of the biographies on the life of Jesus is written by a guy named Mark, and, and Mark tells about this time that Jesus was with his closest friends, and they're on this boat ride late at night, and they arrive at this town on the other side of the lake. As they dock their boat, they're a little bit surprised to be ambushed by this man who had been possessed by many different demons, okay? Now understand, this guy was your worst nightmare come reality, all right, you, you, you avoided him at all costs. If you saw him within a mile, you ran the opposite direction. You would do whatever you could to hide from this guy because he was scary. And Mark tells us that he was possessed by many different demons, legions of demons, which as some estimate that there were over 600 demons controlling this man, okay? He had been subjected to living in caves and graveyards and they couldn't even chain him up because the demons would break the chains away. And, and so when, when, when the demons see Jesus as he docks this boat, th- this man run towards him, okay? And as they stand before Jesus, they fall down in submission and fear and reverence and awe and Jesus doesn't even flinch. Now, what would have been typical back then was for Jesus to say, hey, get, get back in the boat. Here, here comes this guy. Yet, yet he's not intimidated whatsoever. Why? Because Jesus knew who he was. He knew he had power over them. And you know what? So did the demons. It's why a guy by the name of James says that even the demons, the, the, the Satan and his armies know who Jesus is and they shudder. In other words, the hair on the arm sticks up. They know of the power and the authority that, 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 that Christ has. There was something about this Jesus that... All the bystanders who were there that day thought some, something is different about him. And it's why to this day, every time that you look at a calendar or you date a check, you are reminded of the birth of Jesus, that there's something about the life that he lived that serves as, as kind of a pivot point, okay, in, in all of human history. Now think about it like this, okay? He lived a life of only 33 years. He, Jesus never wrote a book. He, he never led an army. He never held office. He didn't even own a home, okay? He never earned a degree. He never even married. And yet somehow the life of Jesus Christ has become the dividing line in all of history. Now here's the thing. If he really is the Lord of all, then isn't it reasonable to, to think that, that he's smarter than us at the very least, Right? I mean, is it possible for, for us to walk through some challenges that didn't really catch him off guard, that, that he, he, was, he was totally aware of, and he's promised to, to hold you and carry you through this? You see, sometimes I think our problems seem so big because our view of Jesus is way too small. 
And there's something about the, the longer that you're a Christian, the more you're part of the church, the longer you've been a part of the church, you kind of get inoculated to Jesus. You, it's just overly familiar. We forget who he is, right? I'll never forget growing up. Uh, I'm the youngest of five kids, and all four of my older siblings at one point worked at their favorite Mexican restaurant over in Louisville. Now, the reason why they wanted to work there is because they loved the food so much, okay? And uh, I remember very vividly that every night when they would come home, they would bring home a bag of their favorite chips and salsa from the restaurant. But something interesting happened after a few weeks, okay? Those chips and salsa didn't come home as often. All, right, all of a sudden, they got to this point where, where they couldn't even, they couldn't even uh, stand the smell of Mexican food. That They didn't even eat at the restaurant anymore, even though at one point in time, it was their favorite restaurant. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, not only was it their environment that they worked in day in and day out, and, and not only did they observe behind the scenes and how food was made and, and the rationale behind why the public health department gave this restaurant a C rating, okay? But it was something that was very routine for them. And so what ended up happening for my siblings with, with this food, okay, is that it, it, it at one point was a passion, at some point was a love in their life, and then slowly over time, due to familiarity, they became indifferent towards it. And doesn't that kind of describe the way that some of us, some of us view Jesus? I mean, at one point in time, he, he was special. We had these emotions, and, and we just couldn't learn enough about him. And yet over time, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of faded. Maybe this is why showing up to church feels more like a job at times and a place where we just kind of go through the motions or we become indifferent towards people that God loves. We know the right things to say when others ask uh, how we're doing. We know the right things to even pray when we know that others are listening. But you see, show me someone who merely gives Jesus a nod here and there, and I'll show you someone who's holding on to a version of Jesus that could fit on a Hallmark card. You see, the depth of your surrender is determined by the size of your Jesus. And so what would it look like if you gave Jesus unhindered, unlimited access to every part of your life? What would that look like for you? What would change? You see, the one thing that stands between who we are right now and who we can, who we can become is, is surrender. And the thing that keeps many of us from surrendering, honestly, is an emasculated, watered-down, deluded version of Jesus. Look at verse 17. It's why Paul, this is one of the first things he says. Look, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's kind of the glue, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy all right, Paul reminds these believers that, that in spite of some false teachers that, that had permeated their, their gatherings and, and they were wanting to, to take over and assume control of the church, Jesus was really the one in charge. Okay, he, he was the one who has control. And ironically, when we look throughout church history, churches just have this natural drift about them to begin focusing on other things besides Jesus the longer that they exist. But we need to understand that apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, we, we, we are nothing. 
When Jesus first imagined the church, he, he was talking to his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and, and he imagined that it would be this movement that would be unstoppable, uh, kind of like this, uh, th this wildfire that would sweep across the entire universe, and it would be this unstoppable force that the world had never seen. And he went so far to say that, that not even the gates of hell will be able to stop what, what I am going to do. Now, I bet that whenever you hear the word church, you probably don't think of movement, Right? And yet what's interesting in the back half of the Bible that we refer to as the New Testament, that word church, okay, in the Greek comes from this word ekklesia. Well, what does ekklesia mean? Well, let's look at it right here. Ekklesia, okay, in the ancient world was a gathering of people with a common identity and mission. All right, so this, this word in the Greek was not religious, okay? It, it, it could refer to oftentimes soldiers who, who would gather together on behalf of the nation and they would go out and, and fight, okay? So th this was not really a religious term in the ancient world. And so when Jesus told his followers that, hey, I'm gonna start this ecclesia, they would have understood him to say, okay, Jesus is gonna start this gathering that's founded on a mission that's gonna be unstoppable, right? And so <clears throat> the question is, because very few of us really think of movement when we hear the word church, where did that word church come from? All right, but if there's such a difference between the church that we associate of today versus the church that we read about in the Bible, where did we get off course? Now hang with me here for a second because this is really important and it, there's some, some teaching here. Around 313 AD, the emperor of Rome named Constantine legalized Christianity and the freedom of worship, okay? It had been outlawed in years prior because Christians had, had made the radical claim that Jesus was the king, not the emperor, not Caesar. So during the early years of the church, Christians were marginalized and persecuted. They, they were ostracized. You, you kind of kept them at, a, at an arm's length. And so gathering together, at least once a week was difficult because it had significant social ramifications. Well, when Constantine came in and, and started to embrace Christianity, all of a sudden it became really fashionable, okay, to follow Jesus. Jesus made your resume look better, okay? Jesus, his name was on nearly every single eHarmony profile, all right? His name was equivalent to a, a high status symbol in, in their culture. And so really powerful people, okay, started gathering with other Christians and, and their only frame of reference at the time for worship was the religion that they had converted from. And so little by little, all these gatherings of Christians were unknowingly being influenced by other religions and other philosophies and belief systems. And that was precisely when worship became very formal and symbolic and ritualistic. Incense at that time was introduced. People showed up in, in really formal, fancy uh, clothing to impress others. And so the Romans started referring to the areas where these Christians worshiped as basilicas. Now, basilica, which is a Latin word, means a formal building or meeting place. Again, has no religious connotations whatsoever. Well, Gothic and, and Germanic cultures that, that were also influenced by Christianity later on referred to these areas as kirkas. What's a kirk, kirka? Well, if an ecclesia is a gathering of people with a common identity and mission, a, a kirka is a house of the Lord. Anything that has control or master in your life, this could be a job, this could be, um, you know, in our day and age, a sports team, anything that, that, that is supreme in society. It, a kirka is a ritualistic assembly of, of some form. Again, not, not originally a, a uh, religious term, okay? 
And so what ended up happening is the Germanic term was the word used most often throughout Scripture in place of the word ecclesia. The marriage of those two words reproduced a word in English that we now refer to as the, the church. And so believe it or not, whenever you read the word church in the Bible, it's one of the only terms that's not a direct translation from the original Greek language. It's what scholars refer to as a, as a substitute word. All right, but this seemingly insignificant modification resulted in something totally different than what Jesus originally had in mind when he began this movement. All right, kirkas and, and ecclesias are two very different ideas. A kirka is a location, but an ecclesia is a gathering for a mission. Or right, you can lock the doors of, of a kirka, but the ecclesia of Jesus Christ can't be stopped. You can't contain it, right? And so pretty soon the church wasn't a movement about announcing the good news of Jesus Christ saving us from our sins. Instead, it had morphed into this religion that simply met inside a building. Therefore, who was ever in charge of the church building at the time controlled the church, had the most influence and power. And so controlling the church building meant limiting people's access to the Bible. And this explains why during the Middle Ages, church officials actually chained the Bible to pulpits inside the building. And so you have to imagine this, okay? The central most important event in all of human history that has massive eternal implications for everyone everywhere went from being this sweeping movement that spread to all corners of the globe to then being this very insider-focused, boring, tamed religion that looked nothing like the vision that Jesus originally established. And so when Rome was conquered, a group of people stumbled across the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts of Scripture, and this was a turning point in church history that we actually refer to as the Reformation. The Bible was then translated at that time into English and reproduced so that anyone everywhere could know Jesus. Now, a guy by the name of William Tyndale smuggled copies of the Bible and then spread them all throughout England. This was highly illegal, okay, but it took the government and church le leaders nearly a decade to track him down, but by the time they did, it was too late. He was convicted of heresy and then burned at the stake. Now, imagine this for just a second. All right, why in the world... Why in the world would they care so much about the average person, the average individual having access to the word of God, to scripture? Well, I have a theory. It's because the church leaders at the time knew that once the people actually read the Bible, okay, it was only a matter of time until they discovered that the church of the 16th century bore no resemblance to the church that Jesus initially envisioned. And so sadly, those who had been entrusted with advancing the mission of Jesus Christ instead tried to keep it locked up and contained. But we know that if not even death could hold down our founder, Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be a surprise that their efforts would be empty. Jesus promised that his movement wouldn't be stopped. And, and so that's why apart from Jesus Christ as a church, as Crossroads, we have nothing to say. Right, apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're still dead and, and lost in our sin. Apart from Jesus Christ, we, we, can't, we can't have a purpose for our life. We can't find out who we can become, who our creator originally designed us to be. This church has always been about Jesus and it will always be about Jesus because the moment we get away from Jesus Christ, that's when death comes to a church. And you know what? It should. Because the church is about Jesus. Now here's the thing, 
The drift that set Jesus' church off course for a time is the very thing, it's the very thing that gets between God and us today. What is that? Well, it's pride, right? All right, nobody gets between you and Jesus more than you do. The more we make it about ourselves, the less it's really about Jesus. Skip down to verse 21 in our text. Paul goes on to say, hey, once you were alienated from God, just, just in case you, you were getting on a high horse here, Paul says you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. All right, if you and I were as impressive as we think we are, there would have been no need for Jesus to go to the cross, right? I mean, I'm not nearly as awesome as I sometimes think I am. <laughs> and if I ever need to wonder, I just look at the cross and I'm reminded. All right, but like what we read right here, at one time we were alienated from God. We were actually his enemies. We were guilty of evil behavior. Now, Jesus has not only reconciled us back to the creator, God, okay, but he promises to actually cleanse us to the point where we, are, where we stand before his throne holy, without blemish, and totally free from accusation. Now, these are legal terms expressing that Jesus is our defender. Jesus is our advocate. A few weeks ago, you probably read about the horrific tragedy that occurred over in Missouri, 17 uh, tourists lost their life when they went out on one of those duck boats that's an amphibious vehicle that can drive on the land and then they went into the water and unbeknownst to them, they, they were ambushed by a massive storm and, and the, the boat ended up sinking. 17 of the 29 people on that boat lost their life. There were 11 family members on the boat and nine of them, nine of them perished. One of the two survivors was a lady by the name of Tia Coleman and she was interviewed about what it was like when the boat went down and how she's just processing the grief of losing nine family members. Her three children, ages one, I think seven and nine, all died in the accident along with her husband. And here's what she told the media. I don't know if you caught this story. She said, somebody told me that when they found my, my husband's body that he had all three of my babies in his arms. And so the reason, the reason she said that I could not find them as the boat was being submerged was that he was, he was protecting them. Now we don't know exactly how it happened. But she became apparent in that moment that, that they were facing a life or death scenario. And so Glenn Coleman's immediate reaction was to rescue those who he loved most and, and to rescue the individuals that, that he vowed to protect come hell or high water. And even though he wasn't successful, okay, his attempt to save his children literally cost him his life. Now, I imagine that, that he could have bailed, he could have found a way out of the boat and maybe swam to the shore to, to safety, but instead, what he did was he, he, he sacrificed himself for the helpless at the risk of drowning. And so when Paul says right here that, that we were alienated from God, it's as if we were drowning in our sin, okay? Eternal separation and death is what we deserve. Jesus knew that was on the horizon. That was, our, that was the next thing we were gonna experience. And, and so that when the pressure was on, Jesus had to choose, okay, between his own safety or going down with the boat and rescuing us. Love is why Jesus went to the cross. But what's even more significant that that is love is actually why Jesus stayed on the cross. He could have bailed, but he didn't. 
Look at verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now that word afflictions means to experience distress, pressure, or trouble. And so Paul is literally saying that living on mission, advancing the church, okay, leads to opposition. It didn't make his life easier. It wasn't like a walk in the park. It didn't make things better for him. No, but the heartache, the, the suffering, the challenges, the betrayal, the, the pressure and stress that he experienced for the sake of furthering the mission of Jesus Christ was actually an honor that he willingly endured. He said, you know what? As long as people know about Jesus, what I have gone through, the, the persecution, the suffering, it, it, it's all worth it. Now, let me wrap up here <clears throat> with a couple thoughts, okay? Now, if, if you're not a Christian, you can just tune me out because this really applies to those of us who uh, are, are believers and follow Jesus. And so if you aren't there yet with Jesus, feel free to tune me out, okay? You, you can take a breath here. All right, the mission of Jesus, okay, the mission of Jesus is really the mission of the church, the mission of Jesus is the mission of the church. Jesus made this very clear throughout his life. Therefore, he was very narrow and selective about who he hung out with because the entire reason why he entered this dark and broken world, as he said in Luke chapter 19, was to seek and save those who were lost. And, and so this meant that, that he had to be selective with who he hung out with, lost people. It's almost as if the lost and broken, the hurting, the messy individuals had his attention at the cost of maybe alienating some, some other people. One time we read about this story of Jesus having dinner at the home of a, uh, a very well-known Pharisee back in the day. And, and as dinner is taking place, this, this well-known prostitute finds her way inside the house and begins washing the feet of Jesus. And, and she anoints his feet with, with really expensive perfume. And, and we know that she's crying and she's taking her hair and she's just cleaning his feet. And, and the Pharisees, as they are observing this, are, are offended that, that Jesus would allow such a woman to even touch him, let alone associate with her. Instead, what Jesus Jesus did, rather than telling her to get away, the Bible tells us that he loved her and he says, woman, your, your sins are forgiven. He prioritized the lost, the broken, the messy at the expense, at the expense of his reputation, at the expense of offending people. Now, the question I have in that story is, how did she get in the house? My theory is I think she had her own key, right? <laughs> But here's the thing, never is our maturity tested more than when the focus isn't about us. And so this church, this community, our nation, our world is actually counting on us as a people, as a community, as a movement to grow. The movement of Jesus Christ spreads like wildfire when we say yes to his purpose, when we say yes to his mission for our life, and we say no to our selfish desires and our preferences and our wants and needs that may come between that. Our focus as a church must continue being about those who aren't here yet. Jesus never compromised the truth of his message. He, he never endorsed sin, he didn't cross any lines, but you know what, if something in his culture could, could be redeemed as a tool for his audience to understand the truth and grace that, that he came to bring, then you know what, he used it, he said, I'm in. And so as a church, our message is timeless. Our message is never gonna change, but our methods must be timely. Our methods, the way that we communicate, must, must be said and communicated in such a way that people can understand. I gotta tell you, I can't remember a time when I've been more excited about the direction of our church as last weekend after service. I had the honor of meeting so many people 
who were here for the first time and never been to church before, didn't know what to experience, and they came up to me in the lobby afterwards and just said, man, that was awesome, never been to church before, it was incredible, and, and they were even surprised that they had darkened the door of a church, and, and may that continue to define our future here. May our rows, may our pews, may, may our buildings, may our campuses continue to be filled with people who are lost, broken, and messy, because those are the people that Jesus came to save. Those are the people that Jesus came to redeem. And so do you know what our growth strategy is as a church? You. You. The reality is you have people in your life that you care about that will show up to church or that will never show up to church unless you invite them and unless you sit with them. And so my promise to you is whoever that person is, okay, whether that's your husband, whether that's your coworker, neighbor, boss, or friend at the gym, when, when that person finally says yes, that we'll be ready for them. We'll be ready for them. And you know what? If you aren't close to people who are far from God, then maybe you aren't as close to God as you think. If you aren't close to people who are far from God, then maybe you aren't as close to God as, as you think because when we open up scripture, we read about a God who is obsessed, is distracted by the lost and the broken and the hurting. You see, this is why we have been challenging many of you to step out and actually host a small group where you live, okay, at your school or where you work this fall. Okay, if um, uh, you, you have a card or you're near the end of the rows at both campuses, if you go ahead and pass out one of those cards, on those cards, okay, there's an acronym for what hosting a group <clears throat> is all about, okay? Now understand, anybody can do this. Anybody can do this. You don't need to have a special degree. You don't have to go through special training, although we will provide that for you. Here's what we ask of you. You wanna know what the qualifications are? Okay, have a heart for people. If you hate people, this probably isn't for you. You know who you are. Have a heart for people. Secondly, open your home, open your business, meet anywhere, the gym, school, your dorm room floor, okay? The S stands for service, snack, or coffee. B, welcoming, hospitable, okay? And fourthly, turn to a passage in your Bible. Now, we're gonna help you with this. If you say, okay, I wanna try this out, here's what we're asking you to do. Our next series that we're really excited about that we're gonna begin after this series is called The Story of God and Us, okay? And for five weeks as a church, what we're gonna do is we are gonna walk through and give a comprehensive overview of the Bible so that if we're honest with ourselves, the Bible can be a little bit confusing to read. And if you're just picking it up for the first time, I mean, where do you start? Start, right? And so throughout this series, we are going to highlight the story of humanity and God, okay, so that people can have a further understanding of who God is and how God has something better in store for them. All right, I can't help but imagine that the one thing maybe standing between marriages being reconciled, moms and dads learning to be better parents, depression and suicide decreasing in big ways throughout our community and in homes all throughout our neighborhoods, actually living with hope for the first time is you stepping out and deciding to host a group this fall. All right, the people in our life are counting on us and we can't mess this up. You see, for God's kingdom to come, our kingdom must go. And so will you step out and will you take us up on this challenge? Will you at least try? Will you be the answer to what people in your life ultimately want and ultimately need? Again, anybody can do this, okay? So here, here's how this is gonna look. If you say, all right, I'm willing to try this. I have a heart for people. I'm willing to just add some intentionality with some relationships in, in my life. 
then after this service at both campuses, <clears throat> we're gonna ask that you just meet us down front, okay? And what we're gonna do is we're gonna pair you with a small group coach. We don't wanna just throw you in the deep end of the pool and expect that you know how to swim. We're gonna give you some training. We're gonna walk alongside you in the midst of this, okay? But we're gonna pair you with a coach so that, so that you, you know a little bit about what you're getting yourself into. Now, this meeting after service here at Newburgh and West will last a total of seven minutes, okay? If for some reason you don't have the time to, to hang around, you've got somewhere else to go. You want to go eat at a Mexican restaurant that has a C rating? Uh, <laughs> then what you can do is you can take one of those cards, put your name on it, drop it off at the Connection Center here in just a few minutes, and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. And, and again, we're going to provide training for you. We're going to follow up with you. And, and again, join us as we walk through this series together because you know what? Eternities, eternities are at stake. Homes are at stake. And you, you could be the answer that people are ultimately counting on. If you're worshiping with us online and, and you wanna check this out and you wanna be a part of what we're doing, we just ask that you comment, hey, I'm interested. And some of our staff will follow up with you this week as well. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna close the service out. And then if you're up for this challenge, and you wanna be the difference, and you wanna help become who people can be, and you yourself wanna experience growth in your life, and I want you to meet us down front at both campuses, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. And I gotta admit that so often, the more we hang out with other believers, and, and the more we, we read about you, and, there's this kind of tendency and there's this drift to, to become overly familiar with it, to become inoculated and immunized to, to who you really are. And, and as a result, when that happens, our relationship with you morphs into a tradition and morphs into a, a religion. It becomes empty and we become more concerned about what others think rather than what you think and what you see in our life. And God, I gotta admit, and I confess that this past week, I've had a, a lot of problems come across my desk, and, and you know what? Those problems have seemed really big. But when our problems seem too big, I'm learning it's because my view of you is way too small. You are sovereign. You are good, and you can be trusted. Continue to teach us that. Use us, Father, as we want to reach the tri-state area and continue this movement that you started 2,000 years ago. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.